It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Carlo Di Clemente, a board-certified psychologist and renowned expert on addiction, health behavior change, and motivation to this episode of The Clinical Consult, where he'll share insights about supporting clients to manage problematic health behaviors. Dr. Di Clemente is Emeritus Professor of Psychology at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and has published over 150 articles in multiple books, like the seminal trans theoretical model of behavior change in his text, Addiction and Change, now in its second edition. Also note that Dr. Di Clemente currently directs the Center for Community Collaboration, the Maryland Quit Resource Center on Tobacco Use Prevention, and the Habits Lab at UMBC. And among his accolades, most recently won the Alfred M. Wellner Lifetime Achievement Award, which is of course the highest honor bestowed on a registrant by the National Register. So Carla, welcome and, and thanks so much for being here today. Glad to be here, Dan. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Carlo, let, let's, let's frame our conversation uh, about helping clients to manage problematic behaviors from the perspective of a health service psychologist in a primary care behavioral health setting, meeting for the first time, let's say, with a, with a patient nearly ready to quit smoking but hasn't quite taken action yet. So this would, of course, be the preparation stage of your trans-theoretical model. What, what can psychologists do to support patients at this particular stage who are, who are balancing the potential pros and cons of, of making that change? Oh, that's a good question. So first of all, I think uh, anyone needs to figure out what does nearly ready to quit mean? Because a lot of people say, oh yeah, I'm ready to quit, but haven't done the work that's needed to make the change happen. So the preparation stage really focuses a lot on commitment and on planning and building a plan that'll work for you. But really the, the important thing is to make sure that the individual has a firm decision, that they really have enough concern, interest, and, and pros to quitting that they need to be able to support a firm commitment. A lot of times people go in with a little wishy-washy kind of decision-making and then kind of make an attempt and it fails. So I think the, the big thing for people to do is to kind of figure out where that person is in terms of the tasks that they need to do to make the journey of change. Say a little more about figuring out where a particular patient is. I mean, I, I'm thinking about this from that health service psychology perspective, and it strikes me as challenging for a psychologist to balance on the one hand, you know, meeting that patient where they are, if there is some ambiguity and maybe some ambivalence about that change, but on the other hand, wanting to facilitate and provide scaffolding to help that behavior change along. I mean, what can be done to best find that balance that you're talking about? Yeah, that's, uh, I think, important to kind of figure out where the person is, you really need to ask them. So you really need to ask open-ended questions about, you know, how they're feeling about this, where, what, what the decision was about, how they came to that decision, uh, even how strong do you think that decision is, uh, their confidence that they could do this. Uh, and, and really try to listen to what they're saying, not only just the words, uh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, but, but also kind of the affect and the kinds of things that are there. And then try to reflect and deepen 
anything that they say uh, in in MI terms, it's change talk. Anything that they say that's really moving them toward change, you want to deepen that and allow that person to explore that a little more so that they have enough um, energy behind it. A decisional balance isn't just a list of uh, pros and cons uh, because lots of times you can have a lot of pros for quitting uh, and cons for continuing to smoke or use substances or uh, use opiates. But again, the, the weight of those really is uh, the important thing. So if, if I have uh, 20 pros for quitting and only two cons, but those two cons are, you know, weigh a lot, then they're going to overwhelm some of the pros. So trying to kind of understand where that person is and how they weight those different considerations would be my suggestion about how to kind of figure that out and to balance, find out about the balance. Let's narrow in on that term decisional balance. I, I want to make sure everyone listening is on the same page. Could you break that down for me? Sure. In, in our understanding of the model and the process of change and the stages, uh, we focused a lot on contemplation as a place where people do uh, an analysis of pros and cons. And so we've used uh, a lot of the work that Janice and Mann originally did on decision making as kind of a rational process, but it's more than just a rational process. It's a rational and emotional process uh, because those considerations have weights and those weights are really about uh, like I said, about the emotional value, uh, the, the cultural value, the importance uh, of those considerations. So, so all of us kind of do that, and many people can get stuck in this place of decision-making because we have a wonderful tendency to kind of go, well, on the one hand, it'd be really good to do this, but, but on the other hand, it's going to be really problematic. So I'll wait till next week or I'll wait till next month. So ambivalence really sits in that decision-making matrix there um, and you're always trying to kind of help the person move from the ambivalence to a decision uh, and the decision generally is made because there are some reasons to do this that are pretty strong and outweigh the the reasons to not do this not make this change and that's what we talk about when we talk about decisional balance I like the point you're articulating about it being a rational process and also an emotional one from, from the, the patient's perspective. And that's, I think, vital to hold in your mind as a health service psychologist when you are working with a patient who's at this particular uh, stage of change. I, I want to harken back to at the outset, I gave you a scenario where that patient in the preparation stage considers the pros and cons of quitting. But Let's now take that same patient some, some months later, for, for example, they, they do in fact quit, but then eventually they, they slip back into the nicotine habit. And I know that you've seen this quite frequently. This, as you're aware, is, is not uncommon with patients who are working to not only make change, but then maintain that change. Tell, tell me what's important to know when it comes to, to relapse. So I, I've been actually doing a lot of thinking about relapse recently um, and, and kind of trying to reconceptualize it as well. So, so relapse, there are a lot of different definitions of relapse, and, and that's part of the problem. So if you take an AA perspective on addiction change, it's total abstinence anytime you 
touch any substance that's you're you're trying to avoid, that's a relapse. For others, they've made the distinctions between what's really a slip or a, a, a multiple slips uh, or a lapse, as Alan Marlett used to call it, and a relapse. But relapse is really hard to decide on what it is. I mean, you know if a person says, okay, I'm quit smoking, and then you come back and they say, no, I'm back to smoking a pack a day like I used to, that that, that person would be called a relapser, that they have relapsed. But, but if you think about the process, relapse is part of the process of learning how to make something happen. So I was thinking on the way in, thinking about our, our conversation that we were going to have. Uh, you know, I mean, people often go back. There's reoccurrences. There are things that don't work out. That's mainly because the process is a complicated one. And so people have to kind of make a decision. They have to make a firm decision. They have to have the commitment. They have to have a good plan. They have to implement the plan. They have to fight off entropy and, and, and the process of, of kind of, oh, uh, idealizing the, the use of the substance. So, so there's a lot of pieces to this puzzle and a lot of things that could go wrong. So the fact that someone goes back and isn't successful this time is what we call relapse. I think now we should be calling relapse, we should call it a relapse only when the person says, I give up on this particular change attempt. That's what I think a relapse is. And, and then I really want to call it a, a reoccurrence instead of a relapse. But basically what, what I think happens is individuals make an attempt, there's something wrong with what they're doing in that attempt, and they fail. And so the issue is, how do you then go from that to becoming a total failure in the sense of I'm never going to try again, to kind of going back and recycling? Relapse, we originally thought relapse was a stage, but relapse is not a stage of change because the relapsers, people who have relapsed, are, are in different places. So your challenge is ask the people not, okay, I, I, I relapsed. Well, well, where are you now? Are you in pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation? Because that's what we found when we were doing the research, that, that they recycle, that they go back into earlier stages, and then they either get stuck there or they move forward and do it again. Because most people don't make change the first time. I mean, I was thinking of, you know, I'm actually, I, I can ski and uh, am a, a decent skier, not a great skier. Um, but I, I tell you that I had to fall multiple, multiple times on many different hills uh, before I actually was able to kind of get this right. And that's really what I think we think about is it, relapse kind of teaches us that we didn't get it all right. You've got to go back through the process and you've got to make it happen, uh, fix the pieces, do it adequately so that you can make it the next time. That's such a great point. And on a personal note, your experience learning to downhill ski sounds remarkably like mine. And so I think <laughs> we, we have this notion and a tendency to conceptualize change as a rather linear process. You know, you, just like you were saying, we set goals, we, follow, we implement the actions to meet those goals, and then we accomplish them. But it, I, I really like how you're putting it. It's so much more nuanced than that. And that 
key term recycling really jumped out at me as, as really, as really essential to understanding this big, big word that I used earlier relapse. Mm -hmm. Could you sh share a little bit more about some factors that, that do contribute to kind of slipping back into some of those problematic patterns. I, I know that one of them that I've, I've learned about is kind of a, a negative emotional state. So um, in my mind, I have that paired to experiencing some of those types of challenges or it being a precursor. But if you could speak to, to, to some of those environmental cues that are related to this slipping back uh, process that we're talking about, or if it's so spread out and individualized, it's hard to even say. Well, I, I think there's several points about that. I mean, one is the, uh, all substances affect the kind of pleasure centers of the brain. And there's actually good work, even with alcohol, to kind of show that what happens if you kind of become, uh, have a serious use disorder, uh, that basically what happens is not your, your self-regulation is compromised, but also your experience of pleasure, your need for that substance, all of those things kind of are in there. And your ability to manage stress is lessened. And that's why a lot of people talk about, oh, oh, I need, I need the cigarette because I'm stressed. Actually, many of the stresses that people talk about when they uh, have a serious substance use disorder are really caused by the withdrawal. And so when I'm experiencing that withdrawal, that is, is a trigger for me to kind of go back or to kind of, okay, I need, I need this. I can't, I can't stand doing this. Now, what also happens is all of these behaviors are conditioned. They are very powerful reinforcers, these substances. And so basically what happens is they get connected to a lot of things that we're doing in the environment. I mean, when I first started doing work in, in tobacco, for example, uh, you could smoke, uh, I used to say, in the bedroom, the bathroom, the boardroom, uh, you could mm -hmm. smoke everywhere. And so smoking became a habit, actually, uh, if you're looking at any old videos or even see Mad Men or other things like that, you will see po people smoking incessantly and everywhere. So, so everything then becomes a cue and it becomes very hard to separate yourself from that. You do need some distance and you need to, if you can't get distance, you need to change the way you're going to respond to that cue. So you either have to do counter conditioning or stimulus control. And, and that's the challenge. Now, the other piece that you mentioned is about e emotion and negative emotion. And it is interesting. I mean, uh, Saul Schiffman did some really interesting work on that because a lot of people will say, oh, I was just stressed and I had to go back or, oh, I felt this way or I was frustrated or I was angry or whatever. And I, I went back and used either opiates or, uh, or cigarettes or alcohol or whatever. Uh, but what, what Saul did was he actually looked at some of the cues. He used the, you know, monitoring uh, everyday activities kind of uh, on your, like a cell phone uh, that see. you bring with you. And he, what he saw was actually there were a lot of negative emotions during that day when these people didn't smoke. There was a negative emotion right before they did smoke. And then they kind of say, well, the negative emotion was the cue. Well, maybe the negative emotion contributed, 
but but that whole process was flawed and that's why that that's why they relapsed at that particular point in time it wasn't just the environmental it was also the personal the commitment the decision the plan the the coping skills all of those things are needed as well Carlo, one idea that I want to touch on before we wrap up from your book, Addiction and Change, that resonates is the notion of developing what you call a comprehensive understanding of, of addictions. And I'll note that this is a rather bold question because I appreciate you've, you've quite literally written a, a book on this topic. Yeah. What, what do you mean by this in a, in a basic sense? And how might psychologists go about integrating or, or maintaining an awareness of that comprehensive understanding in their interventions. So, uh, actually, in in the book Addiction and Change, basically what I do is describe the journey into addiction using the stages of change, and then the journey into recovery using the stages of change. So, basically, you can understand. I mean, how people move. Uh, addiction is basically a well-maintained behavior. It's maintained by the biology, the physiology, and, and as well as the psychology and the social. So you have a well-maintained behavior that becomes difficult to change afterwards. But when I say comprehensive, I think we need to start from the beginning. So many in this audience, if you're listening to me now, are in pre-contemplation for using opiates, which is great. <laughs> Now, how, how, would I, how would someone go through the journey to become, have a serious opioid, opioid use disorder? Well, there's many ways to do that. They would have to kind of get uh, acquainted with it. They would have to move through. They would have to make a decision about how to use it. So if you're deciding to use it for medicinal purposes, uh, then when the need for medicinal purposes is over, you need to stop using the substance. If you then find other reasons to use it, you move forward and you have to make a decision. There's preparation stage. Uh, how am I going to get these substances? Uh, planning for doing that. There's action. And then as you get more and more into the substance, then it becomes it, it kind of, that's what we call addiction, it, it kind of captures you. Uh, it captures brain, it captures body, it captures behavior. And, and basically this individual then becomes um, connected to that. So why is that? And then you move in from there, you move into the stages of recovery. And I have to get you through those same tasks, but now to kind of stop a behavior where the stages of initiation are to start a behavior. Um, it's interesting that the same process seems to be important for both the starting or the initiation as well as the stopping or the recovery. And so when I say comprehensive, what I really mean is that people need to understand, you may see somebody in your practice who's really in early stages of using substances and your work then is prevention, not recovery. And, and that's why it's really important to make that distinction. I'll finish with one uh, story. I was uh, consulting with some of the, the, the NFL counselors. So there are counselors in every city where the NFL has teams that work with some of these folks who um, fail drug tests. And so they kind of go see them, they have to talk to them, they have to do all of that. And many of these counselors were coming out of a recovery perspective. 
and were trying to convince some of these um, athletes that they were addicted and that they had to quit and they could never use these substances again. Um, and then I asked them, well, how many of these people are actually, it, it was the older days in terms of we using dependence or abuse, how many of them are dependent? They said, oh, very few of them. How many then can qualify for abuse? And they said, oh, another number, but, but also not many. So I said, so what are you doing? Well, we're trying to convince them that they have an addiction. I'm going, they don't. <laughs> They're in the process of becoming, and that's where you have to kind of help them to break that, break into that process and move people back to pre-contemplation for using substances, rather than think about them as having to go into recovery. So that's what I mean by a, a comprehensive perspective. That phrase there in the example you provide connects with me because I think this is essential to not only understand all the facets and pieces that go into substance misuse and then maybe dependence and addiction, but also being thoughtful of those factors and recognizing where a particular patient is in their own process. I mean, at one point you said there might be prevention steps that need to be, that need to be taken and not necessarily skipping past many of the steps and then labeling someone as, as addicted and kind of making sure that you're attending to those individual circumstances. Exactly. Carlo, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing you've written so voluminously on some of these issues because I, I think I might just have more questions now than, than when we started. Um, but, but lingering questions aside, you, you've given us plenty to consider as, as we conclude our, our episode of the Clinical Consult today, which has been brought to you by the National Register of Health Service Psychologists. So, my, my sincere thanks to my guest, Dr. Carlo DiClemente, for joining me. I'm Daniel Elkert, reminding listeners that this and all episodes provide general information for discussion purposes only and don't serve as formal clinical advice or continuing education. Thank you.